Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 99. My name is Naman Chalka Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Daniel Lumley, who discussed his role as a director of clinical operations as Amethyst Radiotherapy UK. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, Lizzie Streeter, who is discussing her role as the National LGBT Programme Manager for NHS England. Hi Lizzie. Hi. So Lizzie, do you mind telling us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Sure. So I'm the LGBT health lead at NHS England. Um, I was appointed in 2019 with Dr Michael Brady, the National Advisor for LGBT Health, um, as a result of the Government Equalities Office LGBT Action Plan. Um, So my role is to work across England to raise awareness about LGBT health inequalities and um, to work to educate and improve things like data collection and monitoring and research around LGBT health issues. Uh, We are a super small team, so we're a team of three (laughs) um, and we work across all areas of health. So um, cancer, primary care, screening, maternity, uh, mental health, sexual health. So yeah, there's quite a quite a lot to do. <laughs> um, and then before that, I was working in project management and commissioning at NHS England. So I've worked in the personalised care group. I've worked uh, specifically within maternity services. Um, but yeah, I've always been an active member of the NHS England LGBT staff network as a member of the LGBT community myself. So it's always been something that I've been passionate about. So this was kind of a dream role for me. <laughs> Lizzie, can I ask why why does your title only confine just to LGBT? So it's a really good question. I think it's important that um, you know there's a specific role looking at LGBT health inequalities because this has been uh, an area which perhaps in the past NHS England hasn't had or the NHS as a whole hasn't had a good track record uh, in addressing the inequalities that LGBT people experience. I think that often uh, LGBT issues can be sometimes sidelined or 
um, kind of wrapped up in the equality, diversity and inclusion, EDI agenda, along with other protected characteristics, but that can often kind of do a disservice to all marginalised groups um, that come under that umbrella who all have different distinct needs. So I think it's really important that there's an LGBT health team um, that look at those specific needs of the LGBT community. Um, and also I'll just mention we don't have intersex included in the acronym at the moment, so LGBTI. Um, we're looking at working with Intersex Equality Rights UK at how we might be able to um, expand on our own knowledge in this area um, and do more work for the intersex community. Lizzie, what is NHS England, just for any of our listeners? That's a good question as well. <laughs> so NHS England is often kind of seen as the HQ of the NHS. I'm not sure if frontline practitioners would agree or not. Um, it's the kind of arm's length body from the Department of Health and Social Care uh, in England and we uh, don't do any direct clinical work with patients um, but we to some extent direct the work of the NHS through commissioning um, policy, uh, strategy, that kind of thing. So Lizzie, why do you think it's so important that a role like yours exists within NHS England? So I think often people assume that the only specific needs that LGBT people might have are specifically around sexual orientation, so sexual health services, or gender identity in terms of gender affirming healthcare or um, trans healthcare. But of course, LGBT people use all services like everybody else. Um, but we do have different needs, particularly because we know from the research that LGBT people often feel excluded or unable to access services, either because of previous discrimination that they've experienced or a perception that they're going to be discriminated against before they even step through the door. So it's really, really important from a health outcome perspective that we do make LGBT people feel welcomed within NHS services um, so that, yeah, they can access care when they need it. Um, so that might be things around respecting people's pronouns and chosen names for themselves, making sure that we record those correctly on um, electronic patient records, for example. It's about respecting uh you know people within same-sex relationships so uh we hear all the time still unfortunately about for instance lesbian couples who use maternity services and being um inappropriately questioned about who's or where is the dad uh you know things like this that we i, I think people are still surprised when they hear that this goes on but you know uh the NHS is just a reflection of the of the wider society that we live in and unfortunately there's still a long way to go in terms of LGBT equality um, out there in, in the streets and in the media and, and everywhere else. So the, the NHS is no exception. I think it's interesting you mentioned that, especially in the experiences that we've had through the podcast or, you know, both Joe and I working clinically is people from different communities don't get the support they really need just because of assumptions. So whether it's a young person asking if they're sexually active, well, they might not be able to because of their cancer treatment. 
or what type of sex they engage in. It doesn't really matter, in my opinion. At the end of the day, it's about intimacy and what's important to that person. I suppose maternity is something, I mean, even just calling it maternity isn't inclusive for everyone, is it? So that's one one element for pregnancy um, that I think is still quite far. Yeah, for sure. And I think in certain cancer areas as well, we see them as heavily gendered and, um, you know, for instance, breast cancer campaigns and cervical screening campaigns have perhaps in the past been quite uh, pinkified and, uh, you know, obviously targeted towards the primary audience, which is um, women. Uh, but I think there is there is a way that we encourage services to reflect on that includes everybody whilst not erasing or um, you know, overlooking your primary audience but using additive language so we would say women and birthing people women and trans men and non-binary people it's about being specific about who you're talking to um, so if it's women with a cervix then that's okay to say that um, I think people tie themselves in knots a little bit around around this work so that's partly what our team is, is there for as well so we advise about uh, specific language for people to use we have an lgbt sounding board so that's 20 um, lgbt people who recruited uh, because of their lived experience of health services and being lgbt and we invite policy leads to come and talk to them and, and kind of um, they'll reflect on how things look and feel to them as patients which is really really useful lizzie can i ask how long does it take i'm just thinking maybe some of the projects and research that you're involved in how long does it take from you kind of identifying where practice needs to change to then implementation of that practice and patients actively seeing that change so unfortunately uh progress can be really slow i'm sure that won't come as anyone come as a surprise to anyone that works in the nhs who's familiar with the kind of bureaucracy and red tape that we come across um, I'll give you an example. We've been working with our screening team colleagues um, because at the moment uh, for cervical screening in England, only those registered as female on their medical records will receive an invitation for cervical screening. Um, that means that trans women who don't necessarily need a screening are, are receiving the letters and it also means, um, which you know, which is more of a problem, that trans men and non-binary people with the cervix and who haven't had a hysterectomy aren't getting those letters. Um, so we've been working closely with the screening team um, on an update to the CSMS, the Cancer Screening Management System, uh, to look at how we might introduce an opt-in option. So for those trans people who know that they need a cervical screening, um, they can opt in to receive the call recall letter, which we know is the key way that we engage with patients to remind them that they need to come in for their screening. So something like that has taken over a year. Um, we are still yet to implement it, but you can imagine this is a huge national system um, that links into patient records nationally. And alongside that, we need to introduce education and training for the healthcare professionals who will be um, doing the opt-in um, so that they understand um, 
for instance, the risk profile for trans men and non-binary people, why we want them to take up screening, why they might also be, uh, you know, less likely to access it because of discrimination that they've experienced in the past. We also need to look across the whole pathway. So we hear about things happening like people being turned away when they get to the reception desk because they don't look like they need a cervical screening or even once they've got through that part and they've had the screening, the laboratory rejecting the test because the sample has male marked on it. So there's all these aspects of the journey that you have to consider and it's educating and raising awareness across the whole system and for patients as well. So that change is yet to, to come in. But um, as I said, we've been working really closely together. It's something that I know will make a huge difference for people. So uh, watch this space for that one. Can I ask a slightly provocative follow up to that, Lizzie? So we've had the COVID-19 pandemic where everything virtually overnight went through change because it needed to. Why is it taking so long to do something in the health inequality space like this? I mean, yeah, it's it's a really, really good question. I think people have said things similarly around the recent outbreak of MPOX um, and the fact that it largely impacted um, members of the LGBT community versus had that have been something that happened in the wider heterosexual world, would there have been a quicker response, you know? Um, I think it comes back down to, you know, awareness raising and people not being, not necessarily putting inequalities front and centre, but seeing them as an add-on to everything else. Whereas I think if you address those who are most marginalised within healthcare services, then you make better services for everybody. So you should start with those <laughs> um, that we already know um, experience inequalities. But yeah, I suspect it comes down to who's who was in charge and who was making the decisions around um, the COVID pandemic within government and what their particular interests were. <laughs> It's a shame, isn't it? But absolutely your point about we often will focus on the majority so that we reach the majority of people. But I think actually even down to the research that we do, the demographics of patients when we recruit, if you are really highlighting what works for maybe minority groups or, or patients that aren't categorised as stereotypically the norm... And actually you target people who wouldn't maybe want to go for screening because of whatever reason. I think if we can get it right for people, then you can look to scale up. But so often we get we go for the masses, doesn't work for the masses, and we're like, oh, okay, well we won't do it. Whereas if we just went for the smaller patient groups and made sure it worked for them, I think it would then work for the majority, wouldn't it? No, no, yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I also think there's something about learning from um, marginalised groups who have had to kind of fight for themselves. Um, you know, we wouldn't have PrEP if it wasn't for the community groups that did all of that campaigning work um, and you know, fought for the research and fought for the, the impact trials and things like that. And similarly, during COVID, we saw, well, I certainly saw amongst my own kind of community, informal groups pop, popping up to provide well-being support, uh, grocery shopping, you name it, for LGBT people that we know 
were isolated or living in unsafe conditions. So it's actually about us learning from those groups because we're doing it ourselves in a way. Um, and so there's a lot, I think, that, yeah, those running services could learn. Can I ask, what does inclusive practice actually mean? Um, so I think inclusive practice is about ensuring that people feel safe and supported to um, access healthcare services. Obviously, I'm looking at it through the lens of LGBT people, so I think that's about, as I've mentioned already, kind of respecting people as they are, um, and uh, that means, you know, respecting people's pronouns, chosen names, etc. Um, and it's about personalised care, so it's about treating the individual and uh, their specific case and their specific needs, what's important to them, um, and that includes ensuring that the, the treatment pathway that they take is, is the right one for them as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's about involve, involving the patient, listening to them, respecting that they know themselves best. It's quite hard to always implement, isn't it? I think it's, as you said, it depends who's on board with all the aspects of care. I think within cancer, I mean, especially during my time as a student, I didn't have much exposure to all sorts of different issues around inclusion, um, ways to be more of an inclusive practitioner, that sort of thing. Um, I think whereas now we're probably more aware of it when we should always really have been aware of it in healthcare, but it's definitely, I love updating your terminology, your education, going and looking up things yourself. I suppose from an allyship perspective, Lizzie, have you found that through these programmes and this work, that there's been a lot of engagement from potential allies or allies? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I would say positively, whenever we go out and deliver presentations to trusts or um, groups, you know, Royal Colleges, etc., the vast, vast majority of people are open to uh, understanding and learning more about how to better support LGBT patients and perhaps feel sometimes a little bit worried that they might put their foot in it or say the wrong thing, um, you know, get somebody's pronouns wrong, etc. But I, as I say, I think the vast majority of healthcare professionals are driven by a desire to obviously help people um, fundamentally um, and are signed up to the NHS constitution, you know, and, and that is, you know, regardless of any protected characteristic that person may have or differences even that th that person has there's obviously the sharp end i think of kind of homophobia and transphobia that still exists within the nhs and we still really do need to address and um, but as i said i think yeah allies often come to us and say we want to do more or we're thinking about doing this and that's always a brilliant starting point when there's already kind of an open door there um, I think it's really good as allies to join your local LGBT staff network if you can. Um, perhaps sort of being there as an observer and using it as an opportunity to learn from LGBT colleagues about their experiences uh, is really, really important. And also making sure that you're taking in um, sort of social media content from LGBT people, uh, you know, reading books by LGBT people, making sure that you're your knowledge is, is informed by their views. 
Lizzie, what project have you been most proud of in your role so far? So I would say the project I'm most proud of would be the NHS Rainbow Badge Phase 2 project. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, You'll probably know about the NHS Rainbow Badge, um, a super successful initiative that was started by Dr Mike Farquhar at the Evelina Children's Hospital at Guy's and St Thomas's. He literally bought a, a bunch of badges, 200 badges off his own back and started to distribute them amongst colleagues and they it, it sort of snowballed and people became interested in what the badges meant um that they, they were they are a rainbow pride flag with the nhs logo on top of them um and it just sort of started a discussion really about lgbt awareness and inclusion and within i think 18 months of the project over 90 percent of nhs trusts uh, were distributing these nhs rainbow badges um, and signing up members of staff to wear them and staff at the time had to sign a pledge to show that they were a safe person to talk to um, about LGBT issues. From that project Mike got in touch with me and the LGBT health team at NHS England um, to ask kind of if we could provide some additional support bearing in mind Mike has, has a day job um, as a consultant um, at the Evelina and I think the project sort of grew even bigger than his expectations. Um, and also we wanted to take it further. So it's about kind of the symbol of the badge is, is brilliant, but actually what can trusts meaningfully do to improve LGBT inclusion and, and awareness beyond simply wearing a badge? So um, myself and Michael in my team were successful in getting some kind of pump prime funding from NHS England to develop a framework for trusts to undertake a kind of self-assessment. So they go through things like, um, well, they do, a, they do a survey of staff and patients. They look at all of their policies, maternity policies, trans inclusion policies, etc. They look at the physical environment about whether or not the trust has gender in, uh, neutral spaces, for example. Um, you know, are there signs and symbols on the walls that show that you're an LGBT inclusive space? They look at data collection and monitoring. So is there routine sexual orientation, gender identity and trans status monitoring happening? And they also look at the education and training of the workforce. And then through this freight, after they've done this initial self-assessment, they're given a uh, report uh, in the form of an action plan that identifies areas that they can meaningfully improve upon to improve LGBT inclusion within their trust. The project is delivered in partnership with um, several charities in the LGBT voluntary sector, as well as the LGBT Association of Doctors and Dentists, GLAD. Um, and so it's a really sort of, you know, we've got the experts around the table. We still have um, Dr. Mike Farquhar on the steering group, as well as guys who will see the first trust to be involved in rainbow badges but it's it's been that evolution i guess of the rainbow badge project and phase two has been funded for two years just had confirmation of a further third year so i think that's probably the thing i'm most proud of because it encompasses really all of the things that we're trying to achieve um around what creates an, an lgbt inclusive uh service lizzie you talked about uh, lgbt inclusive spaces what does that mean what could we what, you know, what does that mean for a department for example so i think 
it's thinking about both patient and staff um, spaces. Um, increasingly, that's uh, gender neutral changing and toilet facilities, for example. Um, it's ensuring that people are aware of and implementing NHS England's um, same-sex accommodation policy, which states that uh, people should be accommodated according to their gender. So trans women should be treated on um, female wards, for example, if that's what their preference is. Um, it's about also things as like uniform policies, you know, um, making sure that in descriptions of uniform, for example, um, we don't say female fitting, we might say, uh, you know, more, <laughs> more of a fitted shirt or something like that. So, so people can choose what clothes um, suit their, suit their needs um, and gender expression. Um, and we're not limiting people to kind of typically binary male, female uh, uniforms. Um, yeah, it's lots of things. <laughs> that sounds really positive. And actually, things that people could implement themselves without necessarily having trust-wide change. But I'm just thinking of maybe some of the allies and ambassadors that we have within oncology. You know, it's thinking about those things. And as we build new departments, it's having that at the forefront of our mind, isn't it, in terms of how we develop the service and the accommodation based off the entire demographics of all of our patients and not what's kind of stereotypical norms. Um, can I ask Lizzie, um, in terms of kind of what we can do in oncology, is there something that you've learned from your patient group that you think we should be starting to implement or that we can make change now without necessarily national trust-wide change? So I think from the perspective of the patient it's about just listening to them and reflecting the language that they use for themselves and for others around them so for instance something we hear which is sort of a, a an example of a microaggression is if somebody refers to their husband but then other people constantly say your partner <laughs> as if they can't quite bring themselves to acknowledge that it's a gay marriage um and you know so yeah, using the language people use for themselves and respecting that people know themselves best. So not questioning somebody's gender identity or, you know, just, just um, or gender affirmative care, really. So um, using the terminology that people use for themselves. And this also comes up in maternity. Um, everybody has different words for different parts of their anatomy and for some trans people there might also be dysphoria attached so i think it's thinking about things like uh where people might have different terminology for infant feeding or chest feeding for example um things like that so just being really attuned to how people describe themselves uh, and those around them and then i think in terms of research there are so many areas that we don't that we that we need more research on um around lgbt people i think we have quite a lot of um research on behaviors so we know that lgbt people are more likely to to smoke uh, drink alcohol um 
misuse substances, etc. We also know we have higher rates of uh, mental illness, um, but we don't necessarily know beyond that kind of what impacts those have longer term on our health outcomes. Another area I'm particularly interested in is around presentations for screening. So we think that LGBT people often present later when they think something might be wrong because they, yeah, all of the things we spoke about, um, the fear that they're going to be discriminated against um, or yeah, just, just difficulties accessing the service in the first place because they're not even invited for some types of screening. Um, and so I, but what we don't have is research on do, do later presentations of LGBT people result in poorer health outcomes? You'd kind of imagine that, that it would. Um, but again, I think we need much more robust um, research on those areas. And it's really the LGBT sector at the moment kind of leading the way on that. Um, but we could do with other people supporting us, I think, in, in doing that research. We did publish some really interesting um, research last year with NatSEN and NHS Digital on the outcomes for sexual minority groups within the health survey for England um, because that data had been collected for a number of years but just never been analysed. So we look at eight years worth of data um, and it's really, really interesting for those people interested in that sort of thing. Lizzie, can I ask a bit of a personal question? Why are you doing this? Why, are you so, why is this so important to you? It's a really, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think it's important to me because I see people and hear from people every single day struggling to access uh, NHS services as and, and in particular that's trans colleagues and friends of mine you know we know that um, waiting times in this country for gender affirming healthcare are totally unacceptable and wouldn't be acceptable in any other area of healthcare that makes me really angry um, I think it's also a particularly challenging time for LGBT people um, the current political climate is quite toxic um, I feel like we need to be really um, protective of, of the rights that we currently have because you know there's every chance that those rights could be rolled back so I think sort of now more than ever um, it's it's really important that we uh, continue to fight for those rights yes we've got same-sex marriage but it doesn't end there kind of thing um, I, I think you raised some really key issues and points there and as much as people say you know trans rights it is or isn't important I think for us Joe and I anyway it is important because if those sort of rights can be taken away from a certain group of people what's stopping that happening to other groups of people for other things so where does it stop I think yeah for me it's a huge issue and actually for our patients where we've actually come such a long way to support them you know through charities like live through this who are like just amazing things for people just as humans we've done so much so far to now watch it just slowly being taken away again actually from a healthcare perspective is going to cause more issues further down the line exactly as you said people won't go for screening they'll develop later so more of a burden further down the system you know hospice care they might not get what they want their preferences so actually people might not die how they want to it keeps going and going and going so yeah i i'll say what you probably aren't allowed to fully say but it's a really important thing at the moment 
and I just yeah, if I think for any of our listeners anywhere in the world, it is an issue because it does affect all of us. And Lizzie can just nod along <laughs> politely. <laughs> no, I totally, one hundred percent agree. Totally with you. Um, Lizzie, I, I feel like we've interrogated you a little bit along the corporate line. Um, what do you do day to day? What does your day look like in your role? Oh, that's yeah. It it can be so varied. Um, there are lots and lots of different plates spinning. So I know um, I mentioned progress is slow, but there are lots of different projects happening. So day to day, I might have a meeting with our research colleagues. So we've recently commissioned some research uh, into LGBT healthcare education and training within nursing colleges and medical schools. Um, I might meet with one of our LGBT voluntary sector partners. I'm glad you mentioned Live Through This. We absolutely love Live Through This. And so, um, you know, I'll regularly catch up with Stuart there. Um, Gosh, yeah, it can be very varied. Um, Often talking to, for instance, our kind of senior leaders across the organisation. So the, the heads of nursing and midwifery meetings, I might go and give an update about the work we're doing. I might be... Uh, during Pride Month, which is obviously this month, um, I'll be doing lots of um, talks for LGBT staff networks within trusts, either on Zoom or in person. So yeah, it can be really varied. Um, Sometimes it's sort of data related and (laughs) um, not very glamorous, but very occasionally I get get invited to do more glamorous things like going to uh, LGBT events and things like that, which is always good. I've, I've unfortunately, since COVID, go into hospital settings a lot less than I used to, um, but I'm hoping I'll get to do that a bit more um, soon. And do you find people actively reach out to you for advice and support just in terms of kind of, you know, I'm just thinking of maybe some of our listeners who might be thinking, oh, Lizzie's made some really good points. Are you accessible from that perspective? Yeah, we have a generic inbox um, which my colleague manages so I can share the email address of that for you that's the way to get in touch with our team um, we, yeah we're always happy to respond to people's questions our one of our aims is to try and make sure that where people are doing things like sexual orientation monitoring that there is a standardized way um, that people kind of do it so we, we do encourage you to get in touch with us if you're doing things like that um, or yeah, similarly, if you've got questions around language and patient information leaflets, um, do get in touch. Or if it's more complicated th- things as well, then um, feel free to. And as I said, we can come out and talk about our work um, to your teams if that would be useful. So Lizzie, we're coming towards the end of our podcast. I think it would be unfair to interrogate you again with more top tips because you've given so many brilliant things throughout. But I just thought with something that you mentioned as one of the top tips earlier, would you mind finishing with a few of your favourite LGBT books, literature or movies that people listening to this episode could go and look out for? Yeah. Um, So I'm currently reading at the moment a book by Travis Alabanza called None of the Above. Um, I would also recommend the book that was recently published by Sean Fay. And I have to plug... A book by my colleague um, Tash Oaks Munger, um, which is all about trans joy. Oh, in terms of 
uh, oh gosh, I love LGBT <laughs> media, like TV shows and uh, films. I mean, you have to watch Heartstopper on Netflix if you haven't already. It's just a gorgeous kind of teen, um, boy meets boy, very cute um, show. And also, if you haven't watched It's a Sin, it's absolutely heartbreaking, but a must watch for sure. If you want to, if you're also on Channel 4, um, there's a film called Rebel Dykes, which is great. Um, and there's also a series called The Bisexual. So that's four things to go and watch <laughs> over the weekend if you haven't already. <laughs> I'm not sure yet, Lizzie, that we've ever done CPD <laughs> that that requires people to go and watch a series. Yeah. But there you go. This could be the episode where we go actively. You need to go and watch a series. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Lizzie, um, and keeping on your corporate line. Sorry that we tried to steer you away from that path. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you for everyone for listening to Rancher. So your host today have been Norman Chalkams and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for goodie purposes, consider the reflection questions posted or the links to TV shows or books uh, and any literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. Uh, so our next guest to feature will be John Archer, who will be discussing his career, proton therapy and managing a proton beam service. Thank you for listening and take care.